Well, I want to begin uh, with an illustration this morning just to get you thinking about this passage we've just read. And uh, the phrase that came to mind for me as I began to meditate on this passage, uh, it's not directly related to the title of the message, which is the righteous branch, and we'll come around to that theme in due time here. But I want you to think about the phrase coming attraction, right? I trust you're all familiar with that phrase. If you've ever, ever uh, been to a movie before, anybody never been to a movie? I didn't think so. Um, you all know, right, that in our culture, the phrase coming attraction is an idiom. It's an American idiom that refers to the, uh, the advertising that goes on to promote a movie before its official release, right? So a coming attraction, is, that's the phrase that's used uh, to promote a movie that's going to come out, that's still in production, and has not yet been released. A coming attraction. And, of course, the art of how to promote a coming attraction has gone to new heights and new levels over the last many years. You know, as more people are online and more people are going to the movies, uh, you know, if you do any kind of study of this, you'll find some amazing statistics. I did just for fun. I looked into this, and I discovered that uh, there's a list online of the top 25 movie trailers of all time, and you can actually find uh, even a specific list uh, regarding the top movie trailers and how many times they were viewed within 24 hours of being posted online. Now, this is remarkable, okay? Three, two out of the top three spots on the list belong to Avengers Infinity War, I don't know if you saw that movie. I'm not sure that all the hype you know, was um, uh, lived up to. But anyway, that's another subject. Uh, get this, okay? Number one on the list of all-time movie trailers, coming attractions, viewed 230 million times within 24 hours was the first trailer that came out for Avengers Infinity War. And then number three on the list viewed 179 million times, was the second trailer that came out for the same movie. So if you do the math and combine that together, I mean, I'm sure some of them were the same people watching you know, both trailers, but we're talking about like close to 600 million people, over 500 million views of those movie trailers in anticipation, Right? A movie trailer is meant to build anticipation. It's meant to pique your curiosity. It's meant to capture your, your interest so that the coming attraction will draw you in, right? When the movie's released, the idea is they want you to go see the movie. So they're going to promote it up front in a way that grabs your attention and compels you to go to the movie theater. And millions of people do this. Millions of people watch a movie trailer and are then convinced that they have to see the movie when it comes out. Now, the reason I want to start with that as a, uh, a concept, an image, is because I think in one sense, and this might seem kind of odd, but I think you could actually think about the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah tw- uh, 23 as something like a movie trailer. They are a preview of a coming attraction a preview of a coming attraction. And they came out, get this, 
600 years before the attraction. Not just a few months, but 600 years before the coming attraction would finally arrive. But these words in Jeremiah 23 are a teaser. They're they're a picture of the coming messianic king, whom we know to be Jesus, the Christ. So let's think here about what Jeremiah is telling us about the king who is to come. And let's look at this preview and, and what, uh, you know, what's revealed, the insights that we can glean regarding the coming king. Think of this as a sneak preview for the greatest attraction that would ever walk on the face of the earth. And here's where I'd like to start. I want you to see here in the first four verses of Jeremiah 23 that something is revealed to us about the heart of God, the heart of God regarding his people. I mean, let's be honest, right? How many of you have actually read the first 22 chapters of of Jeremiah? Okay, good, a good number. And they are depressing, aren't they? They're kind of depressing, let's be honest. It's, it's a lot of woe. It's a lot of judgment. It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of calamity. The first 22 chapters of Jeremiah are a tough read. One chapter after the next, after the next, it's oracle after oracle after oracle, prophetic word after, one after another from the lips of Jeremiah that talk about the calamity that's coming upon God's people. And it came. Those words were fulfilled. Those prophecies were fulfilled, right? In 586 B.C., we know that, that in history records that, that the Jewish people living in Judah and Jerusalem were overthrown by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The Jewish people that survived, those that weren't killed, either fled to Egypt or were exiled as slaves into Babylon. So the words of Jeremiah came true. He was a true prophet And he spoke from the Lord in advance of what was to happen. And the words that he spoke were fulfilled. So, how great is it then, how great is it that we can trust Jeremiah's prophecies to be fulfilled when we finally get to a good one in chapter 23? Right? 22 chapters of woe, 22 22 chapters of judgment and condemnation, and then finally we get to a word of hope, a word of promise, a um, a word about a coming attraction, really. So listen again to these first four verses, and you'll kind of see the transition taking place here. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who, lead, who tend my people. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done, declares the Lord. So far, it all sounds like the first 22 chapters. But here's where it starts to flip. Verse 3, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. 
I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Do you see the flip between verse 2 and verse 3? Do you see the transition taking place here? What starts out as a a word of woe and judgment, a word of warning, turns to a word of hope, a word of promise, an optimistic word about something that's going to take place that's good and that reflects the heart of God for his people. Here's the first takeaway that that comes to me as I reflect on these first four verses of Jeremiah 23. The heart of God for his people is to see them well-led and cared for like sheep under the care of a good shepherd. So there's an image here that's at play in these first four verses, and it's a familiar image because we're all, you know, we all, I, I trust, or at least most of us, are familiar with the concept that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And we are the sheep of his pasture. That's the image that Jeremiah uses here, although he doesn't name Jesus specifically. But what he's saying is that we are the sheep of God's pasture, and he cares for us as a good shepherd cares for his sheep. And he wants us to be well-led and well-cared for. So the words of verses 1 and 2 then are a word literally of judgment upon the kings of Judah who have let their people down, failed miserably to live up to God's standard as rulers over God's people. These first two verses, when God talks about the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of his pasture, he's describing the kings of Judah, specifically the four kings after Josiah, who was a good and righteous king, the four kings who reigned over Judah before the Babylonians finally overthrew Jerusalem. We've talked about this uh, you know, over the last several weeks, referred to it a couple times. If you're new or visiting with us, hang in there. Uh, but just in short, right, historically, uh, in the last days of Judah, before the Babylonian captivity, there were four kings that ruled over Judah, and all four of them were wicked, evil. Not good kings, but very bad kings who led the people of God into idolatry. There was all sorts of Baal worship happening, including child sacrifice and temple prostitution, all kinds of absolutely terrible things that God could not and would not condone. And he held the leaders of Judah responsible for leading his people astray. So what's interesting here is to see these words from Jeremiah 23 in their larger context. And if you go back and look closely at the previous couple of chapters, Jeremiah 21 and 22, you'll see Jeremiah speaking about two things. One, the kind of king that God wanted his people to have. And two, the kind of kings that these last four guys really were. Okay? So for example, Jeremiah 21, verse 12, here's a specific quote from Jeremiah that reflects the heart of God for his people. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil that you've done. God has a heart of justice. 
He wants the leaders of his people to act justly, right? He wants them to rule with God, godly justice, to administer justice every morning, to rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who's been robbed. In other words, he wants his kings, the, the leaders of his people, to fight against injustice, not to perpetuate it. That's the heart of God for his people. That's the heart of God for his sheep, for his flock. So when a leader rises up and fails to do that, they come under judgment. And then what we read in the successive chapters, chapters 21 and 22, are references to three out of the four kings who followed Josiah and failed to live up to that standard. The standard is repeated again in chapter 22. Jeremiah repeats the same general command, the same, the same idea. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. That's the standard of God. That's the heart of God for his people. That's the kind of king God wanted his people to have. Leaders who would stand for righteousness and justice. And there's a promise in verse 4. If you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who will sit on the throne of David. But if you will not heed these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I could spend some time going through examples of each of the four kings and how Jeremiah refers to them and explains and defines their rule and all the evil that they were guilty of. We won't go there. <laughs> That's not you know, particularly encouraging or helpful, although it is good to understand those things. But each one, in turn, the four kings who reigned over Judah after Josiah were guilty of failing to live up to the standard that God had set for them. And this is helpful for us to think about, even in terms of its application for us, right, with regard to the way that we live under the lordship of Christ, representing Jesus to the world around us. Because the heart of God has not changed. From Old Testament to New, you know, I mean, these words were written 600 years before Jesus and that was 2,000 years ago. So we're talking, you know, 2,600 years ago that Jeremiah was prophesying to the people of Judah. But the heart of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The heart of God for the kind of leaders that he wants, for the kind of people that he wants, for what he expects from his people, the heart of God has never changed. What's changed is the kind of covenant in and through which God relates to his people. And we'll talk more about that. That's a good change, an important one. So I love what John Piper, a uh, great preacher from Minneapolis, um, Minnesota, says about the importance of, of these descriptions of the kind of ruler that God was looking for. Listen to this. He says, this is for us too, isn't it? If that's what kings are supposed to do in the Old Testament, how much more we who serve King Jesus? No matter what your vocation is, the reason you're alive is to celebrate the riches of God by meeting real needs. God's people, 
filled with God's Spirit, following God's way, will move inevitably toward and not away from the people with the greatest needs. And not only does Jeremiah say what God expects from those who sit on David's throne, he repeats the old tension. If you obey, kings will go on sitting on the throne of David. But if you do not, then all promises notwithstanding, this house will become a desolation. So in other words, what Jeremiah is articulating is that if the people of God do the will of God and represent the heart of God to the world around them, then good things happen. Good things result. But if the people of God, and particularly the leaders of those people, fail to do the will of God and reflect the heart of God, then bad things happen. Things get worse, not better. Now, all of that then leads up to and sets the stage for what comes in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And so let's move ahead here to the promise of a righteous branch. A promise about the coming attraction that would change the world. What I want you to see here is that the essence of the problem that Jeremiah has been addressing uh, really just sets the stage for God's solution to the problem. What the people of, of God need is a good and righteous leader, a good and righteous king, one who will reign over them with God's heart in justice and in righteousness. And that's precisely what Jeremiah promises they will receive, albeit 600 years later. So God, pro- God promised then that a day was coming. Here's the second takeaway I want to put before you. God promised that a day was coming when he would restore his people by raising up for them a great and righteous king. And, of course, as I've said already, we know in hindsight now that these prophetic words were pointing to Jesus, Yeshua. Look with me first at Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the beginning of this prophetic uh, prediction, if you will, of God's intent. The days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Now, essentially, if we look at this prophecy closely and kind of break it down uh, into its uh, key elements, I want you to see here that there are really four different statements, uh, each of which have some significance in describing the coming ministry of Jesus, the leadership of Jesus. Now, again, bear in mind here as we think about this that we're looking back on the coming of Jesus 2,000 years after the fact. But when Jeremiah spoke these words, he was looking ahead to the ministry of Jesus 600 years before it actually happened. But what I want you to see is the the clear connection between the words of Jeremiah, the, the description of this coming king, and the fulfillment of those words 
that Jesus brought. So we'll start with the first insight here in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The first half of that verse. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. A righteous branch. What does that image speak to you? I don't know if you're, you know, if you're like some of the folks uh, I've come across online as I research and prepare for messages like this. Um, it, it's interesting you know, if you do a little Google search for righteous branch and see what comes up, both in the writings and in the images. And what, what's fascinating to me is that not many people seem to really grasp the heart of the concept the way that I think the Lord intended it, right? I mean, you might see all kinds of pictures of this big, huge branch of an oak tree or something, you know. Uh, here's what I want you to recognize about this word. The term that's used both here and elsewhere in the prophets, in Isaiah and in Zechariah, as we'll see in a moment, is a messianic title. The righteous branch is a messianic title. Okay? And the idea here, the picture behind this title is the picture, kind of like what you see here behind me. It's the picture of a shoot or a new branch coming out of a dead stump a branch that has been cut off, or a, a stump, a tree, uh, you know, uh, um, what do you, what do you, you know, the, the main part of a tree that's literally been cut off, okay? It's a stump, and there's a branch growing out from the stump. Does this ring a bell for any of you? Does this concept sound familiar? Isaiah 11, verse 1 should come right to mind if you're familiar with your Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied something very similar to this about 100 years before uh, Jeremiah. Listen to what Isaiah said, 11 verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Okay? The stump of Jesse. What is that? That is the kingly line of David having been cut off. The stump of Jesse is what Jeremiah was prophesying about, right? The kings of Judah were going to come to an end with the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile. The kings of Judah would be no more. The kingdom of David was cut off, cut down, and all that remained was a stump. The nation of Israel was done, gone, destroyed. And the kings of Israel were no more. But out of that stump, Isaiah prophesied, and then Jeremiah prophesied, and then Zechariah prophesied, there would grow a new shoot, a new branch that would come up from the stump of David, of Jesse. So Isaiah says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Likewise, Zechariah 3, verse 8, God promises, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. The branch. And just a bit later, Zechariah 6, verse 12, the same concept is repeated again. Here's a man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. So these are prophetic references to this messianic title. And they're descriptive. 
historically of a king who would arise in the line of David from a stump that was cut off and dead, or at least mostly dead. Right? Some of you appreciate the reference. It's only mostly dead. Not really dead, just mostly dead. You see, God had a plan. God had a plan. And the plan, contrary to all appearances, was never really in jeopardy. Right? It wasn't as if, you know, when Israel and Judah came to an end and all the kings were exiled and the, king, the kingly line of David was cut off, it's not as if God was up in heaven thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? This is terrible. No, it was all part of his plan. He's sovereign over all these things. And this image is of great importance, the righteous branch. It's of great importance because it represents both judgment and promise at the same time. Judgment is being cut off. Promise is growing up again. So the stump is the house of David, the lineage of David, the kings in David's line. The last one was Zedekiah, who was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. But the tree wasn't really dead. God had a plan, and that plan was not threatened by what was happening on the earth. What God's promising here with these words spoken through Jeremiah is that a new branch is going to grow out of that old stump. And it's a righteous branch, a godly branch, one of his design, one of his purpose, right? He's saying, my purposes cannot be stopped. My vision for my people, my heart for my people cannot be, you know, I love the, the phrase a friend of mine came up with that kind of describes the purposes of God. He wrote a book, actually, by this, by this title, and he used it as all one, one big, long word. Uh, the title of the book is Nothing's Gonna Stop It. And he used that as a, uh, his name's Bill Jackson. He was a vineyard pastor for many years. And the, the heart of that book and the heart of the concept that he described was that nothing can stop the purposes of God and the plans of God at work on the face of the earth in human history. And I think that's fitting application right here to what we're looking at this morning. Because by all appearances, the people of Judah were headed into exile. They were headed for destruction. The nation was doomed. And yet God's purposes were not threatened. His plan was to bring forth a king in due time that would be the righteous branch from the stump of David. So then we go on to the second part here, verse 23. I won't spend this much time on each one of these, but, um, but I think that's the most significant one to kind of get us thinking historically in context here about the, the significance of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. That brings us then to the second part of verse 23, or uh, chapter 23, verse 5, I'm sorry. A king, right? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Who's that? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is the king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So the second part of this verse spells out even more specifically what kind of king God intends to send for the benefit and blessing of his people. He'll be a king who reigns wisely by doing what is just and right in the land. There's a connection there between those concepts. When you do what is just and right, you demonstrate that you're living according to the wisdom of God. So this description is notable then for its stark contrast to the descriptions that we've just talked about from chapters 21 and 22 about the last four kings of Judah. There's a contrast here. What God is saying is that this coming king is to be the kind of king that he wanted for his people all along and that they needed all along. Not like the four kings of Judah who are now either killed or exiled to Babylon. And again, what I want you to see behind and beneath all this is the heart of God, right? Yes, God's people were overtaken by the Babylonians. And we could say that was actually part of God's plan for them. And that kind of causes you to stop and think, wait a minute, what kind of God would allow his people to be overthrown and destroyed and taken as slaves? Why would God do that? Well, frankly, because they needed it. It was an act of discipline. It was an act of judgment because of how evil they had become. But the heart of God, beyond the judgment, is for restoration. The heart of God, beyond the punishment, beyond the calamity, the heart of God is to restore his people and to raise up for them a leader who would lead in justice and righteousness. A shepherd king in the likeness of David. A king with true wisdom and justice. This is the heart of God for his people. And this is a description, of course, of Jesus and the way that he leads us as the king of kings and lord of lords. So God wants us to live our lives in his kingdom under the lordship of Christ or as as Jeremiah puts it, of a ruler who is both wise and just. And that's precisely what we have in Christ. He wants us to recognize that we can trust that leader to do what is best for us because he's wise and just. So then, look with me at the next verse, verse 6. Because the description of this coming attraction, the teaser, if you will, the preview, continues to get better. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Who's the only one that can save Judah? Who's the only one that can save Israel? Who's the only one that can allow the people of Judah and Israel to live in safety. And when's that going to happen? Well, here, I think, you know, we have to recognize that part of this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. I mean, to this day, right, Judah and Israel are still surrounded by enemies. They are not exactly living in safety. If you follow the news at all, you know that there are constant tension on the borders of Israel and that there are plenty of people and plenty of nations on the earth that don't like Israel and are enemies of the people of Israel. 
So this promise, I don't believe, has been completely fulfilled. I think it's yet to be fulfilled completely. But there's a sense in which Jesus began that fulfillment, right? So as we move into this verse, though, what I want you to see is that the significance of this coming king gets stated more and more broadly. The importance of what he's going to do for God's people becomes bigger and bigger, more and more significant. Not only will he be a good leader, he will effectively save God's people. And you can think of that both literally, physically, geopolitically, and, of course, spiritually. We understand, you know, we understand in hindsight now that the salvation that Jesus brought for us was not just like political salvation from enemies on earth. It's spiritual salvation from a spiritual enemy. So, what I believe about this word is that this is an incredible word of hope and promise for the nation of Israel. But it's not just for the nation of Israel. It's, in a sense, it's even for us. It's, it's regarding the ministry of Jesus to the people of the earth, not just to the people of Israel. So, this year, if you're following the news or uh, history, you're probably aware that Israel celebrated its 70th anniversary as a nation. 1948 was the year in which Israel was reconstituted, uh, reconstituted as a nation after its destruction in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. What's interesting about all that and what's uh, directly relevant here is that what Jeremiah was prophesying about happened once with the Babylonians and then it happened again with the Romans, right? The people of Israel and Jerusalem were conquered again. And the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD, after the ministry of Christ. And if you stop and think about it and do the math, I mean, that's a lot of years. From 70 AD to 1948, the nation of Israel did not exist. And yet, I believe, by the hand of God, the nation of Israel has been reconstituted and it's all part of God's end-time purposes. And though the nation was, by all appearances, destroyed, it is now being restored magnificently. And Israel is becoming a leader among nations because the favor of God is on that place and on those people. Now, there's a lot to be said, of course, about the fact that they have yet to fully recognize Jesus as Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah that was promised but they will. That's another promise that we could talk about described in Romans chapter 11, but we'll save that for another day. So let's look ahead now to the end of verse 6, the last of these four insights, prophetic insights regarding the Messianic king that Jeremiah gives us. Here's the grand finale. Verse 6, Jeremiah 23, 6, this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Think about that. How fitting is that to the ministry of Jesus? And that name was given 600 years before Jesus appeared on the earth. Jesus is the one 
to be recognized as the Lord, our righteous Savior. As many translations put it, the Lord, our righteousness. So this last prophetic description of the coming king, the coming attraction, um, in this last description, Jeremiah comes to the grand finale with this statement where he assigns a name to this king. And it's a descriptive name. It's a very important name because it describes the purpose that the king would serve and accomplish. The Lord is our righteousness. So not only is this king to reign over God's people with wisdom and justice, he is to be the source of their righteousness. What does that mean? Stop and think about that for a minute. I hope, as you stop and think about that phrase, that you'll be painfully aware that as a human being, you and I, I'll put myself right there with you, we all fall short of the righteousness of God, don't we? We all need righteousness. We all want righteousness. But the fact is, we can't get it on our own. Try as we might, we continually fall short. The standard of God for holy living, the standard of God for righteousness, the standard of God for holiness, the standard of God for right relationship with him. I mean, just boil it down even to the Ten Commandments. And you realize pretty quickly, we all fall short, right? No one of us has lived up to the standard of righteousness and, and in that sense sort of earned favor with God. Righteousness before God can only come to us if it's given to us as a gift. And that's the significance of this title that Jeremiah gives to Jesus. Righteousness comes from God, not from us. We can't manufacture it. We can't just try a little harder. You know, we can't, we can't work, you know, work a little harder and, and do a little better and, and just muster up enough, you know, uh, of the right stuff to be the kind of people God wants and needs. We're completely dependent on the grace of God to be made righteous. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans and think about how they connect with this name that Jeremiah gives to Jesus. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what Paul's saying is, this is the righteousness of God can only come to you by faith. You can't get it any other way. And then he comes back to this theme a couple chapters later and spells it out even more. Listen to these words from Romans 3, 19 to 26. And again, think about how they connect to the name that Jeremiah gave to Jesus under the inspiration of God. Now we know, Paul says, Chapter 3, verses 19 and following. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight 
by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Hello? That's, what, that's exactly what we're reading. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's testifying to what God will do. This righteousness, verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let me boil this down for you this morning. And hopefully for many of you, this is familiar. You've heard about this and learned about this already and you understand what it means to receive the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. But if there's perhaps somebody here this morning or a few somebodies who are um, what you might classify as a seeker or a doubter, you're not really sure where you stand on all this, let me just make it really clear for you, as clear as I can, that the description of Jeremiah, the title that Jeremiah gives of this coming king, the Lord is our righteousness. That title is being explained here by the Apostle Paul. Paul is articulating in no uncertain terms that righteousness is a gift from God that can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to get it. No person in human history has been able to be completely righteous on their own. So as followers of Jesus then, we believe that he came according to God's promise as the king of kings to usher in God's kingdom on the earth. And he, oh, by the way, he was from the lineage of David. No coincidence there. And in so doing, he fulfilled then God's covenant promise to David, but he also began what we refer to as a new covenant of grace with people of all nations, not just the the Jewish or Israelite people, but people from every tribe and tongue on the face of the earth. This new covenant of God, available through faith in Jesus, gives us righteousness from God because we trust in Jesus. Friends, what I'm, descri- what I'm describing for you is the very essence of the gospel, the good news. This is the heart of it. God wants to make right what's wrong in your life. And he wants to cover over all the sin, all the shortcomings, all the failures, all the brokenness. He wants to cover it over with his grace and his forgiveness. And he does that. He provided a way for that to happen, for you to receive his righteousness as a gift 
through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. So then, what I'm describing requires of us a response, a decision. Do we want that or don't we? Do we recognize our need for that or don't we? What are we going to do with this reality? What are we going to do with the fact that some, some dude 600 years in advance said, God's going to send a king who will be your righteousness? What do you do with that? I suggest to you that the only right thing to do, the only good thing to do, is to say, wow, I think he deserves my allegiance. I think I should give my life to him. I think I should follow him with all that I have. When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the righteousness of God that he offers us. We receive the hope of eternal life. We receive the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we enter and begin to live within, as citizens, the kingdom of God. That's the good news that Jesus came to bring us. So I just encourage you this morning to dedicate your life to living out that good news, living in the righteousness that you've been given through faith in Christ. And then we'll wind it down here with this last couple of verses just briefly. One last insight here. I want you to recognize at the end of all this that God makes one more promise. And there's a lot here. We could spend more time than we have unpacking this. But the last two verses of our text this morning, verses 7 and 8 from Jeremiah 23, we find another element of all this. And I think it's fascinating. God here promises that this new and, no, new and coming king, the coming attraction, would fundamentally shift the identity of God's people. Now, maybe if you've looked at the verses and you're thinking about them, you're kind of wondering what I mean by that and how that's reflected in what Jeremiah says here. So let me explain just briefly. Look again at these verses, Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say instead, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. So there's two things happening here that I want you to, to recognize and understand. At the literal, you know, physical level, right, what Jeremiah is prophesy, prophesying about is a return to the land of Israel, a return to the promised land by the people of God. He's saying, okay, the people of God have been banished from Israel. They've either fled to Egypt or they've been, taken, or they've been killed or they've been taken captive to Babylonia, right? by King Nebuchadnezzar and his army. But he's saying that captivity is not going to be indefinite. The day will come when they will be restored to the land that they were promised by God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this term or not. I don't want to teach you a Hebrew word this morning that I learned actually when I went to Israel a couple years ago. And I continue to hear about it and read about it because I've stayed in touch with some of the people I met on that trip. 
There's a Hebrew word. It's the word aliyah. Everybody say that, aliyah. You know what that means? Here's what it literally means. It literally means ascent. Ascent. And the opposite of that word is the word, um, where is it here? Yerida. That means descent. Yerida, descent, aliyah, ascent, going up. But do you know how the Hebrew people use that word? Think about this fascinating imagery. To make aliyah is to return to Israel from the nations of the earth. But to make yarida is to depart from Israel to the nations of the earth. You see, they believe fundamentally that God's blessing and favor are so present upon the land that to return to Israel from any other nation where you've lived is to ascend into the presence of the Lord, into the blessing of the Lord, into the favor of the Lord. That's how they view the significance of that land. It's amazing. And that's really what Jeremiah is talking about. But here's the second part of this, right? That's still happening, by the way. You know, oh, oh, by the way, it happened and it was fulfilled in part, as I said earlier, you know, 70 years later. Um, in fact, if you, if you look just a couple chapters beyond uh, this uh, passage in ch- chapter 23, this is from earlier, uh, our readings earlier in the week, Jeremiah 25, there's a reference to 70 years of desolation, specifically. Jeremiah says in 25, 11 to 12, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. And then, of course, as the prophecy continues to unfold, we become aware that that the people of Israel under King Cyrus of Persia will be allowed to return and make aliyah to Israel. So that happened once. The people that were scattered to Babylon, uh, Babylon returned to Israel, and it's happening again. It's happening again. People around the world are moving back to Israel because, of, as I said earlier, Israel was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman Empire, and it wasn't until 1948 that the nation of Israel was reconstituted. Since that time, over the last 70 years, people from around the globe that are Israelites have been moving back to Israel, making aliyah. That's the literal, physical fulfillment of this prophetic promise that Jeremiah is giving. But I want you to see the other element here. And just I know our time is short and I want to wrap this up. But I want you to recognize here that there's a fundamental shift that takes place with these words regarding the identity of God and the identity of his people. This is amazing. And it's amazing specifically if you recognize that throughout the Old Testament, the pivotal event that defined who God was and what he'd done for his people and who they were in relationship to him was the Exodus. The Exodus, the Passover experience, right? The Jews leaving their slavery in Egypt and being called out of Egypt through the wilderness, to the promised land. That's the definitive event of what it means to be an Israelite. And to this day, 4,000 years later, they celebrate the Passover as if it's still happening, as if they're still being delivered from Egypt. But listen to what Jeremiah says. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But instead, they'll say this, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he'd banished them, then they will live in their own land. What Jeremiah is saying is that this definitive connection between God and his people around the Exodus experience is going to be replaced and overshadowed, transcended by something even greater. Their return to Israel from the nations of the earth, Aliyah, will become the defining mark of God's work among his people. And God will be known among the nations of the earth as the one who restored his people to their homeland. I think that's fascinating if you stop and think about the implications of it. What Jeremiah is saying is that as great as the Exodus was, as definitive as the Exodus was in God's relationship with his people, their return to Israel is even greater, even more significant. And it fundamentally shifts the identity of God and the identity of God's people and the understanding of what he's done for them in history. So our time's up here. Friends, I hope I've encouraged you to think a little more deeply about this prophetic promise regarding the coming attraction. It has come. He has come. Jesus has arrived on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. He did some amazing things. He provided for us the opportunity to receive righteousness from God. And then he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God and he's promised to come again. So the coming attraction is still coming. And that's 2,600 years now since this preview, this sneak peek was given. But we still have something to look forward to. And you can rest assured it will happen. These words of Jeremiah have been fulfilled and they are being fulfilled and they will be completely fulfilled when Jesus reigns over earth. Let's pray.